1: helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit N-E-T-S-K-O-P-E North Korea may have hacked into South Korean defense plans, Facebook and Google receive increasing scrutiny for Russian ad buys during the 2016 U.S. election season. A dissident Chinese billionaire exiled to New York says he's been under cyber attack from Shanghai. Oil rig is back with new and improved cyber espionage. Forrester market research reports are accessed by hackers. And we offer some observations from the cyber pavilion at the Association of the United States Army meetings. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your Cyberwire summary for Tuesday, October 10, 2017. Amid tensions over North Korea's increasingly capable missile and nuclear arsenal, reports out of South Korea indicate that someone has successfully hacked into some of Seoul's defense planning files. Reports from both France and South Korea say that some 235 gigabytes of sensitive data were accessed in September of last year. They included detailed war plans to be used in the event of a North Korean attack, including plans for a decapitation strike against North Korean leadership. Such a strike would be designed to destroy the Kim regime and with it presumably the North's ability and willingness to continue a war that recent tests and threats suggest could rapidly escalate to nuclear attacks on South Korea. Some sources indicate the hackers were based in China, and there's some uncertainty as to attribution, but North Korea seems the obvious suspect to observers. Some of Pyongyang's cyber operators are known to work from China. Turning to presumed Russian attempts to influence U.S. elections, Facebook initially seemed uncertain that Russia had been behind some of the election season influence operations the social media company found itself in Meshtin last year, at first pulling attribution to Russia from early versions of its report on the matter. The company now has said there were Russian advertising purchases. Google is also facing renewed scrutiny over Russian ad buys. The amounts bought seem relatively small, sub-$100,000 purchases, as people are saying. This would not be particularly significant in the context of typical election spending. The reports on where the ad money from Russia went are interesting and probably instructive the messages supported Donald Trump, but also insurgent Independent running as a Democrat Bernie Sanders and Green Party candidate Jill Stein. Some reports suggest that the buyers regarded all three as probably also rans. Chinese sources deny involvement in apparent cyber-attacks directed against a Chinese businessman who's been critical of alleged corruption in PRC leadership. Guo Wengi, a billionaire currently residing in New York and asking for political asylum, he's facing an indictment in China on corruption charges himself. The incidents were directed at organizations associated in some way with Mr. Wengi. A Hudson Institute event was cancelled after an apparent DDoS campaign mounted from Shanghai, and a second unspecified incident is said to have led the law firm Clark Hill to withdrawing representation from him. They'd earlier lodged his asylum claim. Guo Wengi has accused China's ruling Communist Party of being a kleptocracy. Chinese officials deny involvement in any of the alleged incidents and say they've had nothing to do with any cyber attacks the exiled billionaire may have faced. The Chinese Ministry of Public Security said, quote, The Chinese government would like to suggest that the U.S. law enforcement authorities supply China with the detailed information, relevant clues, and evidence so that China could assist in the investigations to identify the real source of such hacking. End quote. The ministry said they'd cooperate with U.S. investigators. Palo Alto Networks reports that the oil rig threat group, prominently involved in hacking Middle Eastern targets, is back, with an enhanced set of Trojans in its tool bag. The oil rig cyber espionage threat group is widely believed to be operating on behalf of the Iranian government. Its targets have prominently included Saudi Arabia and other regional rivals. They're using new infection documents and a new injection Trojan. Forrester, the market research firm, has disclosed a breach in which unauthorized parties obtained access to the company's reports. It was apparently a case of credential theft. Forrester says the hackers obtained credentials that enabled them to get the reports. The company stressed that, quote, There is no evidence that confidential client data, financial information, or confidential employee data was accessed or exposed as part of the incident, end quote. When it comes to online authentication and identity, we'd probably pretty much agree that a simple username and password combination just doesn't cut it these days. With more data and services moving to the cloud, the notion of simply protecting your perimeter can get a bit cloudy. Yasira Busselham is chief security officer at Okta, where one of their specialties is identity management, and he offers his perspective.
2: So when you take a look at where we came from as an industry, uh, so in the past, we had a handful of enterprise applications that are deployed on-premise. And to be able to access those services, you would have to be within the network perimeter. Things have changed uh, for the last decade. So a lot of the applications are now outside the network perimeter. Some of those applications are managed by IT, and some of other applications are managed by uh, the user. So the users essentially are defining their requirements and looking for applications that meet those requirements that allow them to do their jobs. So in a way, IT does not have 100% control over accounts that are used to either access corporate data or to manage all the transactions that the business user has to uh, carry on on a daily basis. So
1: are we talking about cloud-based services, things like Gmail um, or Dropbox and things like
2: that? That is correct. So uh, those services could be application services such as Dropbox, Gmail, Concur, Expensify, and so on. But we're also talking about infrastructure services uh, such as AWS.
1: And and so as we've gone to these these online and cloud-based services, has uh, the role of identity changed or, or kept up?
2: The role of identity is changing in a way that it's becoming the cornerstone of the security strategy of every enterprise. Uh, So when you think about it, the network perimeter is eroding. Since now, we cannot protect uh, services that are hosted within the perimeter. And all of those services, or most of those services, are migrating to the cloud. They're no longer uh, hosted on-premise, and so we cannot rely on the network perimeter to protect access to those services. As these services move to the cloud, the users and user accounts are also located in the cloud. So they are outside of the network perimeter. And really the identity is the only element that we can control and where we need to focus our security controls. Uh, That's why uh, a lot of the companies right now rely heavily on identity as a service, uh, as as, as I mentioned, a cornerstone of their uh, identity and security strategy.
1: So beyond, uh, you know, the old school username and password, um, you know, we have things like, uh, like multi-factor and uh, uh, biometric types of things. W- what sorts of things are, are on your radar?
2: The first thing that we need to consider is the fact that we need to implement this uh, layer between the business user and all of the services that they need to access. Uh, that layer can be in the form of single sign-on uh, in a way that we need to maintain a single user account for all of the services uh, that the business users need to do their jobs uh, on a daily basis. Uh, the second thing that we need to add is multi-factor authentication. So now we believe that cyber attacks are increasing in numbers and, and, and sophistication. We need to add multi-factor Authentication as a uh, really a requirement to be able to protect access to these services because of the fact that uh, the number of attacks and the sophistication of the attacks is increasing. Multi-factor authentication is now required, and that's just one element and one layer that we need to add to our security strategy to properly secure access to uh, the enterprise assets.
1: That's Yasir Abusaham. He's the CSO at Okta. Proofpoint warns that purveyors of Covter malware are running a new aggressive campaign. Its apparent goal is ad fraud. We've been down in Washington, D.C. covering the Association of the United States Army's annual meetings from the Military Professionals Cyber Association Cyber Pavilion. We'll have some extensive accounts of the sessions later this week, but wanted to share a brief account of Command Sergeant Major David Redmond's presentation yesterday on the current state of U.S. Cyber Command. He's the senior non-commissioned officer at both U.S. Cyber Command and the National Security Agency. He began with a caution for military people thinking about cyber operations. It's easy to become intimidated by the technology, he said. But in his experience, the commands that are most effective operating in cyberspace are those that take their existing processes and apply them to the domain. Cyber effects bear strong comparison to kinetic effects, and this should be borne in mind when thinking about cyber operations. The cyber operators themselves, he said, need to remember that there's a so what to their craft. They have to bear in mind that they're working in support of larger goals. It's not, he said, just a matter of high-fiving when you've succeeded in doing something to a box somewhere. He's also confirmed what many others have observed, There's a strong convergence between cyber operations and more traditional intelligence and electronic warfare disciplines. And he echoed a familiar call for more effective use of artificial intelligence to free operators from the repetitive tasks they find themselves involved with. We'll have more on this and other presentations later this week. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. And joining me once again is Chris Poulin. He's a principal at Booz Allen Hamilton Strategic Innovations Group. He heads up their Internet of Things security team. Chris, uh, welcome back. Um, We wanted to touch on medical devices today. You know, we've seen stories recently about pacemakers and insulin pumps. Um, What's your take on where we are when it comes to protecting connected medical devices?
0: Yeah. So it's interesting. It's sort of the new frontier right now. As a matter of fact, at DEF CON, we saw that there was a biohacking village around uh, different types of implantables. And I know that the medical device manufacturers are highly concerned uh, about the security of their devices. It's kind of interesting, though. It's sort of a mixed bag between implantables. Everybody sort of seems to focus on pacemakers and insulin pumps and all the things that have a direct consequence on the humans who are wearing those devices. But there are also other things like infusion pumps and MRI machines and X-ray machines are all also connected. And so, you know, on one hand, we want to protect the patients. Uh, but on the other hand, the thing that concerns me quite a bit is that even just an infusion pump, and uh, one of the uh, security researchers not too long ago found that it was listening on uh, Telnet uh, without a username or password. So you could Telnet to the device and it would drop you to a root shell. Hmm. And so, I, you know, the thing that scares me the most is that if you were in a hospital, And even if you're not at risk of somebody turning up the infusion pump and giving you dose after dose after dose, the attackers are still using those things as a front door to get into the medical networks and eventually get to the billing systems and to the electronic medical records, um, which we know are worth a lot more in the black market than credit cards are. And in fact... There was a research, I think, in 2015, where um, some security researchers went on Shodan, and they found that 68,000 medical devices were actually exposed to the internet that provided an access point to get into a healthcare network. I think the thing that we're focusing on is not just looking at what can happen from a Gwiz perspective or a you know a shock and awe factor. You know, literally, when we talk about phasemakers, no pun intended. <laughs> But also uh, the fact that medical devices themselves are there far and wide and scattered uh, amongst different places, and not just the big hospitals, but also the small caregivers who may or may not understand cybersecurity in the first place. And that exposes medical records. So that's one of the things that we've been doing um, is working quite a bit on trying to find vulnerabilities um, in devices, profile them, but also put in place technical stacks that help to identify the medical devices and uh, appropriately isolate them so that they're not directly on the same networks as information that's valuable to cyber criminals.
1: All right, interesting stuff. Chris Poulin, thanks for joining us. That's cyberwire.com slash survey, and share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations.